Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, our discussion on last Sunday's gospel treated the spiritual work of mercy known as admonishing the sinner or fraternal correction. In the gospel reading from the 18th chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus provided us with step-by-step instructions as to how we ought to go about this quite often difficult but very necessary work. We were taught first to go to the offending party privately. If the individual remains unconvinced, we were told to bring along additional persons to give voice to the same truth. If the individual insists on their innocence or ignores even this method, Jesus said to bring them to the assembly of the church to be corrected. Finally, if all of these approaches fail and the individual remains recalcitrant, we were taught to stop associating with that individual. These steps include at the very least two elements that are nonsensical to the popular culture of our own time and place. First, telling someone that they have done something objectively immoral presumes that there is an objective truth and morally objective right and wrong accordingly. For a society like ours, ruled as it is by the dictatorship of relativism, such a notion is unintelligible. Therefore, many will have heard these words and implicitly brushed them aside as irrelevant for us today, seeing as we have moved past such facile ideas as right and wrong and have matured as a society. We have, as Nietzsche would have it, gone beyond good and evil. And what has taken its place? what many in our own time and place call tolerance. Which brings us to the second element in Jesus' teaching from last Sunday that is nonsensical to the vast majority today. We are now tolerant as a people, not bigoted religion-obsessed people who think there is an objective right and wrong, which is why to even suggest that it is the right thing to do not to associate with someone if they do not amend their ways in order to make how serious their error is very clear to them is ridiculous, if not blasphemous, to those who champion the vague notion of tolerance. Today I want to ask and respond to the question of whether or not tolerance is in fact a good that Christians should practice. But first I want to ask, as we look out into our world today, does it seem what you would think of as more tolerant? Do we all really go along to get along? Are we more peaceful as a people, now that large portions of our society have supposedly become tolerant? I think a very cursory glance at the local, national, and global news provides a very loud answer in the negative. The question is, why? Why aren't things better when relativism reigns and everyone is able to decide what is right and wrong for themselves? You would think freedom from moral restraints would make everyone happy, wouldn't you? That's what many voices out there today would have us believe. So, why hasn't tolerance brought us peace and happiness? Because relativism can't provide the basis for an ordered and harmonious society. In fact, it ensures the absence of order and harmony in society. 
Consequently, when objective truth is pushed out of society, a vacuum is created. And instead of everyone becoming their own sovereign, the powerful decide what's right and wrong for the rest of us. Might makes right. The next question is, if the relativistic version of tolerance leads to chaos and the triumph of elitism, is there a form of tolerance that can bring us closer to true peace and happiness as a society? Our gospel reading for today leads us to answer this question with a resounding yes. The opening exchange between Peter and Jesus in our gospel for today follows directly upon the gospel reading from last weekend in the 18th chapter of Matthew's gospel. And in this exchange, we begin to see just what Christian tolerance consists of. First of all, Christian tolerance is intrinsically connected to forgiveness. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? Before unpacking this further, it is important to keep in mind Peter's role as leader and spokesman of the group of the apostles. Consequently, Peter is not only asking Jesus this question for himself, but for the whole community, the whole church. In terms of the discussion at hand, Peter is essentially asking Jesus, How tolerant must I be with my neighbor? How much leeway do I give before I simply dismiss them completely and no longer think of them and love them as a brother? And the way Peter asks this question contains an important detail. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter rhetorically proposes an answer to his own question to Jesus, centered on the number seven. Peter's proposed solution to his question is symbolic, and its symbolism demonstrates the length, breadth, and depth of divine tolerance. In scripture, the number seven symbolizes several different things, among which is completion or perfection. The most famous example of this is found in the first account of creation in Genesis, where we are told that God rested on the seventh day after six days of creating. Consequently, in his proposed response, Peter assumes that to forgive his neighbor seven times is to forgive completely or perfectly. Not so coincidentally, the number seven is also used to describe the number of times the just are said to fall or stumble in chapter 24 of the book of Proverbs. Peter's response, then, seems to imagine a scenario where one deals with the offense of a righteous or just person, one who honestly tries to live according to God's law, yet inevitably fails to live it perfectly. However, Jesus tells us repeatedly in the Gospels that he has not come to call the righteous, but the sinful. Thus, to Peter's question, Jesus responds to him and us, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus' response here uses the number seven in a slightly different way than Peter does in his question, using it to denote not simple completion, but abundance, and we might even say superabundance. We find such usage associated with the number seven in other places of Scripture. For example, in the book of Leviticus, we hear God telling the people that if they are disobedient to the covenantal law which he has given them, he will discipline them sevenfold for their sins. Along the same lines, in Psalm 79, we find the people of Israel praying that God will avenge them sevenfold against those who have disgraced them by exiling them from their land and thereby demonstrate to all nations that they are indeed uniquely God's chosen people. In these cases and others, seven symbolizes abundance. 
Accordingly, by using the number seven exponentially, Jesus is in effect saying that if one is to be his disciple, they must be prepared to forgive super abundantly or in a way that exceeds what we think of as perfectly. To put it in terms of Peter's question, the Christian must be prepared to forgive not the righteous, but the sinful, as Jesus did. And for the sinful, no ordinary amount of forgiveness is required. Instead, the sinful require an abundance or unlimited amount of forgiveness. Drawing these various strands of thought together that contrast the righteous with the sinful should summon a very important question within us. Didn't Jesus come to save everyone? If he did, why does he say that he came to call the sinful and not the righteous, or came for the sick and not the healthy, as he does in Mark's gospel? The key to understanding the distinction, fellow sinners, is to see that none of us is healthy. None of us, not even those among us who try to live the divine law to the utmost, is without sin. This is why Jesus could so famously tell those who would have condemned the woman caught in adultery in chapter 8 of John's gospel that he who was without sin should cast the first stone, knowing full well that none was so. As the Son of God incarnate, Jesus knew better than anyone could just how much we all stand in need of God's forgiveness. He knew, as the book of Isaiah teaches us in chapter 53, we had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way. And we would have remained so had he not seen fit to take upon himself the guilt of us all, availing us of divine forgiveness and thereby demonstrating most perfectly God's love for us. In this we find another key ingredient in Christian tolerance. Christian tolerance imitates divine tolerance with the very same aim in mind, ultimate reconciliation with God. Here a brief examination of the etymology of the word tolerance is helpful. The word tolerance comes from the Latin tolerancia, meaning bearing or enduring. Thus, just as God bears with us, enduring offenses to his divine order of love over the course of millennia with the reconciliation of all through, with, and in the Son in view, so too Christians must be tolerant. However, to be Christian does not make one impeccable, which introduces yet another key ingredient in Christian tolerance that radically distinguishes it from its vapid worldly counterpart so in vogue today. The supposed tolerance the world sells to us today is intolerant at its very core. The reason is that it is a tolerance measured by the standard of worldly elites. Transgress that standard, and tolerance very quickly and viciously turns into condemnation and ostracization. Not so ironically, these are the very same things the secular elites often charge religiously minded individuals with. What has happened, then, isn't that the world has become more tolerant. The world has rather set its own standard by which to tolerate. By their own standards, the secular elites are impeccable. They live their own standard perfectly, which includes altering that standard whenever it suits their own liking and best interests. Consequently, any faith, most especially Christianity, that teaches that there is an objective standard by which to live that precedes and far exceeds any standard we could ever set for ourselves is often deemed intolerable and dangerous by the secular culture and its would-be champions. And they are right. For if practiced, Christianity puts their relativistic reign in mortal danger, exchanging it for the reign of divine love. Exchanging the reign of relativism for the reign of divine love only happens, however, when we come to see in humility 
as individuals, and as the entire people of God, that we are not what we have been created to be and are in desperate need of a merciful Savior, which is precisely what Jesus teaches us in the parable which follows his exchange with Peter today. Jesus' parable for today wonderfully demonstrates the unity of Scripture, and therefore how reading Scripture is often best done by reading one passage in light of another. We can read today's parable as a further clarification of Jesus' response to Peter and as a dramatic exposition of the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In terms of our discussion today, the key word in this petition is as. This is the only petition of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus directly comments on in his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. There in verses 14 to 15, Jesus says, If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. As the Catechism teaches in paragraph 2838, this petition is astonishing in its requirement. If we are to be forgiven, we must imitate divine forgiveness, which, as we have already discussed, knows no limit. Jesus' parable today so beautifully captures the messiness and complexity of human life. Within the span of several verses, the very same individual is depicted as a positive and then negative exemplar in turn. Jesus begins by saying, That is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. By presenting this parable as an exposition on his response to Peter, Jesus wants us to bear in mind that what we see in this dramatic portrayal is the loving divine forgiveness which knows no limit, which will be very important to keep in mind at the end. The king in this parable is God. Notice please that by depicting God as a king, Jesus is using an image that was very relatable to the people of his own time and place. The vast majority of the people of that era were used to living under the rule of sovereigns who dictated terms by fiat. The sovereign had the last and final word. This is something that we who live in a democratic era where things are ideally determined by the consensus of the people must be kept in mind. Jesus is telling us that the order of reality isn't voted upon. It isn't something we determine for ourselves. Rather, reality is given to us by the one who created it. And as his creatures, we must live in accordance with his creation if we are to live up to our created potential. We will see in short order that the standard this king rules by is the order of love. Jesus tells us that the king discovers a debtor who owed him a huge amount, such that there was no way he could ever pay him back for his debt. With this, fellow sinners, we find ourselves thrust upon stage, face to face with our sovereign Lord. None of us, not a single one of us, could ever pay God back the price of a single sin. The transgression of the created order of divine love is literally priceless. Once we are separated from God, the only thing that reunites us with God is freely given divine grace. Period. Full stop. Thus, each and every single one of us is meant to see ourselves in the place of the debtor in Jesus' parable today. Inundated in debt, the debt of sin, and at the complete and total mercy of our sovereign Lord. In the parable, seeing that the debtor had no way to pay him back, the king decides to take what was his to begin with by force, the entire life of the servant. Once again, Jesus is asking us to see ourselves in this debtor. 
We would not go far wrong by saying that, as creatures, by the very fact that we exist, we are already in debt to God. Life itself is sheer gift. A gift that comes with the mandate to live as a twofold gift to God and neighbor, as we will see momentarily. At this point in the parable, the debtor serves as a positive exemplar. You see, he recognizes the gifted nature of his existence. He recognizes that there is nothing he can do to repay his king, not only for his life, but for the debt he has incurred by failing to live in just relationship with the king. In his reaction, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, the debtor exemplifies three virtues, humility, discretion, and justice. The virtue of humility enables the debtor to see himself as he is, a debtor who has nothing to offer his king except devotion. When we draw an analogy to our lives as creatures, devotion becomes worship. And so we are told the debtor fell down and did the king homage. In other words, he assumes a posture of worship. Next, Aquinas tells us the debtor exemplifies discretion. For, in the humility of worship, he does not ask to be forgiven the debt entirely, but asks the king to be patient with him, to forgive him his debt only for a time. And if given that time, the debtor promises to fulfill the order of justice and pay back his debt to the king. In all of this, the debtor rightly exemplifies the attitude we ought to come to God with when asking for forgiveness. We must humbly acknowledge we have sinned and that we have no way of repaying that sin but also have the firm purpose to amend and live justly moving forward. In other words, the debtor seems to recognize the astonishing requirement of life in God's kingdom, and the king's initial reaction seems to confirm this. We are told the king answers this prayer, as it were, of the debtor, is moved with compassion and forgives him the debt. This is key, for compassion denotes a co-suffering with another, in other words, the king deigns to patiently carry the suffering this individual has as a result of their debt in order that they might be unburdened by it. This is precisely what God does in the incarnation of the Divine Son. God patiently deigns to bear the burden of our sins as one of us in order to lift that burden from us by forgiving us as the king does in this parable. At this point in the parable, the debtor shifts from positive to negative exemplar. Jesus tells us that he finds a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller debt, and that he seized him and demanded he repay the debt. The fellow debtor responds to the first in the same way the latter had the king, begging for patience until he could repay the debt. And here the co-star of this parable fails miserably. To put it in terms of the Christian virtue of justice, he rightly recognized that he must love God with his whole self, his whole life, which won for him temporary reconciliation with his Lord. However, he failed to recognize that to love God with one's whole life demands loving one's neighbor as oneself and with the very same love which one has been loved by God with. Driven by the vice of pride, the first debtor senses power over his fellow servant and intolerantly judges him by his own standard. He thus denies forgiveness to his fellow debtor and puts him in prison. Failing to live the order of Christian justice, the co-star of this parable falls out of right relationship with the king and becomes separated from him in perpetuity, indefinitely finding himself in the very same prison he had created for his fellow servant.
My friends, today Jesus teaches us what authentic tolerance is all about. It is not the cheap knockoff we hear bandied about by the cultural elite of today's society, which judges by its own relativistic standard, which changes from one day to the next. Rather, Jesus teaches us today that authentic Christian tolerance is an imitation of divine love and contains three key elements. Firstly, authentic Christian tolerance is informed by the virtue of humility. The virtue of humility gives us the ability to recognize two things. First, that we are creatures whose life is gift at its core. And second, that none of us, no matter how mature in our growth and holiness, is yet perfectly the creature we have been created to be. Rather, we all fall short in sin. This twofold recognition enables us to see the same in others and thereby exercise the virtue of patience with them, regardless of where they are in their own development, which is the second key element of Christian tolerance. In Sermon 47, St. Augustine implores his parishioners to put up with the shortcomings of others. And why? Augustine tells them, because perhaps you have been put up with. If you have always been good, be merciful. If at one time you were bad, don't erase the memory of it. And who anyway is always good? It will be easier for God to find that you are bad even now, if he investigates you carefully, than for you to find that you have always been good. Finally, Christian tolerance always has the aim of reconciliation in mind because it recognizes that the human family has been created to be part of the divine family. Consequently, Christian tolerance acts according to the virtue of justice, according to the twofold command to love God and neighbor. It patiently forgives others their sins against one for the sake of perfectly loving unity with one another in the embrace of our heavenly King and Father. It is this that distinguishes authentic tolerance from the tolerance of the world. Christian tolerance does not seek the fulfillment of its own temporal desire or advantage, but compels us to forgive others in love with the hope of reconciliation and peace. At bottom, then, Christian tolerance is nothing less than picking up one's cross and following Christ. For in doing so, we bear the weight of the sins of the world so that one day we might all experience the joy of everlasting and unshakable unity in the heavenly kingdom. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.